This is going to be something of a multi-part sermon this week. We're going to tackle the idea of Pharaoh hardening his heart slash God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And we're going to do it by building off some of the ideas that we talked through last week. What I realized in working on this sermon, though, is that the ideas in it, while I think they are important and address an issue that many of us have wondered about at some point, they're also in some ways beside the point. I can, I hope, present arguments for why God hardening Pharaoh's heart is a reasonable and understandable thing, an apologetic, if you will, for why it was probably the best, maybe only way for God to do things. However, as with most apologetics, I find, I'm afraid it's going to be a nice, tidy argument that addresses the question at hand, but doesn't actually touch the root of the discomfort that brings up the question in the first place. Because the root of the discomfort in this story is that God seems to act in a way that, to our sensibilities at least, is untrustworthy, not good. The God in this story seems troubling, not like the God we thought we knew. We have a hard time picturing Jesus forcing or even encouraging someone to disobedience just for the sake of then punishing them and the whole nation along with them. We've all had times when we've read a story from the Bible, maybe this one, and the picture of God we seem to find there is uncomfortable, strange, fearsome. It doesn't fit. It raises the question in the back of our minds whether this God is who we thought they were. Maybe more importantly, we've all had times when something happens to us or to people we care about or in the world at large, something that similarly calls into question whether there is a God at all. And if there is, if they are who we thought they were. And I would guess that many of us have had experiences of people giving us nice, pat, apologetic answers that tie the question up into a nice, neat package and then really do precisely nothing to address the doubts and fears, the discomfort behind the question. The most egregious example of this for Meredith and I was when Meredith went into preterm labor and we lost our twin daughters, Kate and Lucy. And multiple people attempted to comfort us with the explanation that God just needed a couple more angel babies in heaven. I'm sorry, what now? (laughs) That's supposed to help? So, I'm going to talk about why I think God hardens Pharaoh's heart in the first part of the sermon. But then, and this is the response time that we had as a live community, we're going to make a sharp turn to the more fundamental question of what we do when something, whether a story in the Bible or a real life experience, makes us question who God is and whether they are trustworthy at all. So first, the idea of hardening the heart shows up throughout the conflict between Yahweh and Pharaoh. God introduces it while talking to Moses out of the burning bush. This is from chapter 4, verse 21. And Yahweh said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And then God reiterates things in chapter 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, I will lay my hand upon Egypt and bring my people, the Israelites, company by company, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And then this is exactly what happens. Chapter 7, verse 13. However, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Throughout the story, this is repeated. I counted 19 times in these few chapters. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 
Sometimes it says more vaguely that Pharaoh's heart was hardened in the passive voice. And sometimes it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, the first thing for us to know is that while our culture tends to think of the heart as the place of emotions, where a hard heart would mean something like cruelty or lack of care for someone. In the ancient world, the heart was thought to be the place of the personality and the will. It was where decisions are made and intentions are set. John Goldengay, the Old Testament scholar, suggests that strengthen Pharaoh's resolve might better capture the idea than the literal translation of harden his heart. So strengthen Pharaoh's resolve. The second thing to note is that Pharaoh hardens first. This is not a situation where humble old Pharaoh would have let the people go, but God overruled his natural inclinations. No. As we saw last week, from the very beginning, this interaction is a power battle between two self-proclaimed gods. At most, God is encouraging and emphasizing a personality trait that's already present within Pharaoh. God is egging him on, if you will. This is not Pharaoh acting contrary to his own will or inclinations. It's a, an exaggeration of what was already there. So with that context, I'm going to suggest two main reasons for this theme to show up. One is about the way evil systems actually work in the real world. And the other is about the particulars of the context and what God was trying to accomplish in the Exodus itself. So first, we can look at the way oppressive systems actually work in the world and see that this story really does ring true. This is how self-proclaimed gods operate in the real world, isn't it? Systems of power like this only end when some sort of dramatic breaking point comes. The powerful in a system of injustice do not willingly give up power. Their power usually needs to be broken. And even when they lose power, if we look at the reality of how things work, they're always on the outside looking to grab power back to reestablish their supremacy. It is unfortunately the case that there are some systems that only something dramatic and catastrophic, revolution, war, wholesale collapse, can upend if anything new and better is to form in their place. Now, we may not like that fact, but it does show up again and again throughout history. Slavery was going nowhere in the United States unless the Civil War had happened. And even then, in the long run, we've seen replacement systems of racial injustice snap right back into place time and time again. Reconstruction and the system of sharecropping farmers, Jim Crow, the inequities in drug laws and prison sentences, redlining. And as we see time and time again, as we look at history, systems are not the product of one person at the top being evil and then everyone else being innocent. Systems happen when a complex mix of the whole of society get shaped in certain oppressive ways, including the oppressed themselves. And so again, setting the Israelites free without a wholesale change, a dramatic breaking of the whole system, more likely than not, that was going to result in even the freed Israelites snapping right back into the same old patterns of injustice that they had learned in Egypt, just with different people at the top and different people on the bottom. But God's goal is not just to set the Israelites free. It is to set them free so that they can be a group of people who show the world what God is like through their life together. Their systems and structures, their society and culture, the way they interact with each other and with the world as a whole, all those things needed to be different than how things worked in Egypt. 
And so a dramatic, catastrophic break with the past makes sense from a practical point of view. I think we can look at the whole situation and say, oh, but surely there was a less destructive way. But when we seriously look at history, at the ways that evil and injustice and power have actually operated, how in real life things usually work, what would that less destructive way be exactly? When has evil ever just gone down without a fight? I think imagining that such a thing would be possible might be a bit on the naive side. That would be great, but it's not how the world actually works. In this light, God hardening Pharaoh's heart is God working within the reality of the world, egging Pharaoh on so that the full, unhinged evil of the Egyptian system of slavery could be clearly seen by all, so that the people would be ready for the radically different life that God is going to propose on the other side of the Exodus. So that, I think, is reason number one. And the second reason goes back to God's goal in the Exodus, which we were talking through last week a bit. This whole story circles around the question, who will the Israelites serve? Yahweh or Pharaoh? The Israelites do not know Yahweh at this point. This God that Moses says is going to set the people free is at best a distant memory. The giver of promises to the ancestors that have apparently not come true. Just look around. No promised land just slavery. And Pharaoh is the one who seems to have the power right now. Pharaoh is the only God who matters for the Israelites at the beginning of this story. It takes a little effort, I think, to get our mind back into that perspective. This story is a contest between Yahweh and Pharaoh, a contest that is being put on for all of Israel to see. In the same verses that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is brought up, Along with it comes this very idea. Right after the verse I read a minute ago, in chapter 7, verse 5, God gives part of the reason for the hardening of the heart. God says, The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. And then later in chapter 11, verse 9, as the plagues have dragged on, Yahweh says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you in order that My wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God making themselves known through the Exodus story shows up again and again. And the reason this matters is that it clarifies the point of all this. If the point were just to set the Israelites free from slavery, then sure, God could have just done it with no plagues, no bloodshed, no hardening. Although, You could make the argument that that would have been an even more egregious example of God overruling Pharaoh's free will because Pharaoh was not under any circumstances going to let Israel go without a fight. But setting Israel free is only part of the point. Again, Israel does not know Yahweh. They do not know who God is. They have no reason to trust God. Beyond that, as these verses indicate, the Egyptians certainly don't know Yahweh. And this story points even more broadly that eventually the story of what God has done would be told in such a way that all the world would hear about what this God has done for Israel in Egypt. And all the world would come to know who God is as a result. And so the contest to show God's power and character is not an unfortunate sideshow. It's the main event. Had Moses walked up to Pharaoh and asked for the Israelites to be set free and had Pharaoh responded, oh, yeah. Sure, why not? I'm good with that. Well, there's no contest there. 
no display of who God is. In fact, it would have left the impression in people's minds that it was Pharaoh, not Yahweh, who had actually set them free. Pharaoh made the decision. Pharaoh was the one who had the power and out of that power decided and allowed the people to go. The people would have been free, but they wouldn't have trusted God. They would have gone on trusting Pharaoh. The only way for God to show their power, to convince the people that they truly are the God of the whole earth who has power over even the empire of Egypt, and then in the future, the empires of Babylon, Rome, and all the rest, the only way to cement that fact in people's minds and in the minds of generations to come was if there was a story of Pharaoh, the most powerful man slash God on the face of the earth, doing absolutely everything he could to stand in the way, to hold on to his slaves, to break them, and then failing. Pharaoh had to give his all to oppose God, and he had to lose. Only then would God's power shine fully out for the people to see, to believe, and to trust in. This is also one of the reasons why Jesus had to die, actually. The words, Jesus has power over even death, are nothing but words unless he actually accepts death and then comes through on the other side. He has to die and then defeat the power of death by rising again in order to genuinely pull the whole thing off. The contest between Jesus and death is not an unfortunate sideshow of Jesus coming. It's one of the main events. We look back on both of these stories now, already knowing their outcomes, and we wonder if it all had to be quite so dark and dramatic. But I think if we put ourselves back into the shoes of the people going through it, who didn't know what was going to happen, it helps us see why the fight was necessary. Pharaoh hardens his heart because that's what power does when it's challenged. God eggs Pharaoh on so that the contest between Pharaoh and Yahweh can be as clear as possible for all to see. God encourages Pharaoh to fight even harder so that all would see God overcoming the most powerful man-slash-God of the day. God hardens Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh needs to do his worst so the people can see God's best, so that they can come to know God more fully, and so that the world could come to know God more fully. So there's part one, the information. Hopefully it seemed like good information and was helpful so far as it goes. But I have a hunch that some of the people who are listening to this might still feel a bit dissatisfied. We might accept the, okay, sure, that's a reasonable guess about why God might have done this uncomfortable thing. But there really weren't any other options. There's mystery there from our limited perspective. And discomfort sometimes comes with the mystery of it all. Just the other day, Riley and Peyton had plans to go over to a friend's house to watch a movie, and the friend had agreed for them to come at 8.30 in the morning. Well, this friend's family is a bit flaky, let's say. There'd already been a previous day that this movie watching was supposed to happen, but then the mom canceled at the last minute. Friday night, before they were supposed to go over to see the movie, this time she texted to push things back to 9 from 8.30. And Meredith didn't see any reason to tell all of this to Riley and Peyton to have to explain why this thing they were so looking forward to had gotten pushed back by the eternity that is half an hour, how they shouldn't get their hopes up too much because who knows if this family would cancel altogether at the last minute again. It wasn't worth the emotional energy to try and have that conversation and deal with the nervousness and the feelings that it would bring up in Riley and Peyton. So 
8.32 rolls around, and Riley sees the clock and yelps, we're late, it's after 8.30. And Meredith says, no, we're not late, we've got time. But Riley insists, no, we're late, we need to go now. And Meredith says, no, you're wrong, just trust me. Still not wanting to have to explain and have a whole conversation about it. She knew that everything was fine. Riley just needed to trust her. But Riley, being Riley, says, but why am I wrong? (laughs) He refused to live in the mystery of just trusting that his mother who loves him had a reason for something that seemed inexplicable. Now, sometimes, like in this case, it's not too big of a deal to just explain it to him, even if it is a bit of a pain, takes a little energy. But other times as parents, there are reasons that we can't explain to our kids for one reason or another. And they get an incomplete version that is heavy on the, this is just how it is, and light on the explanations. Because they aren't ready, or they aren't able to hear the reasons. We might balk a bit at this analogy, gasp me like a child, why I'm smart and capable, I understand things. (laughs) Now, of course, none of us would actually argue that we are capable of understanding God's full reasons for all things. We're not that smart. But even so, we might feel the resentment of God holding out on us nonetheless. Now, I'd actually argue that that is much the same feeling that children feel when their parents tell them, this is just how it is. We, like children, can sometimes be really good at overestimating ourselves and what we can or cannot understand. So what do we do when we find ourselves in that sort of a place? When a story in the Bible or events in the world around us are mysterious, when we don't understand why? When they bring up questions about whether this God really is who we thought they were, whether they really can be trusted. Well, finding good information can be a good first step. Trying to understand the troubling story better in its context or learning how other people have wrestled with similar issues or questions and come through the other side. That's where we started today. But sometimes that still isn't enough. Another good step is to remember who our God is, what their character is like. The stories of them coming through and being faithful to us, to loved ones, to the people in scripture. These stories are our anchor in stormy weather, holding us close to the true character of God, even as some aspects are mysterious or troubling. So we practice remembering who God is. And when that fails, or maybe at the same time as we are doing those things, we come to God. In Exodus 5, Pharaoh brings down the hammer on the people, forcing them to work even harder as punishment for daring to ask for freedom. And look what Moses does. These are the last two verses of chapter five. Then Moses turned to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated this people and you have done nothing at all to deliver our people. I love that. You have done nothing at all to deliver your people. I can hear my kids making that same accusation or something like it to me. Basically, to sum it up, in all its anger and flippance, Moses comes to God and says, what the hell? What the hell, God? It's not the last time we see Moses do this in his life as a leader of Israel. Ours is a faith tradition that welcomes saying, what the hell, God? The Psalms are full of what the hell Psalms. How is that guy's life great and mine's falling apart? Where did this tragedy come from? I thought that you could be trusted, so where are you, God? Seriously, what the hell? We're going to look at God's response to Moses in a couple weeks. 
For now, I just want to point out that Moses, after venting, stays in the conversation. I don't think the importance of that part can be underestimated. The writers of the Psalms stay in the conversation. There are so many people who've been hurt by church, by life, who are quick to bring up their grievances against the Bible, God, the church, but then never go beyond that. They just keep bringing up the grievances time and time again and show no interest in continuing the conversation with God after saying what the hell. And so they never get anywhere because they aren't interested in getting anywhere. Not really. You may know that the ancestor of the Exodus people was originally named Jacob. And in one story in Genesis, God gives him a new name. Jacob had been wrestling with a shadowy figure all night, the story goes, and refuses to let go until he receives a blessing from this strange person. And the new name is given in response to the persistence. Israel. It means wrestles with God. Ours is a wrestling sort of faith. Wrestling with hard ideas, wrestling with mystery, wrestling with troubling stories and traumatic experiences. We wrestle with God. Not say what the hell and walk away. We say what the hell and then wrestle, refusing to let go until we receive a blessing. Sometimes it takes all night and the dark night drags on for years, but we wrestle because that's who we are. It's in our very name, Israel. I think it's incredibly striking and important that God not just tolerates, but celebrates and encourages us to say what the hell and then to wrestle with them, refusing to let go. It's almost as if God wants a relationship with us and not just for us to unquestioningly do what we're told like machines or trained dogs. So when we were live, we turned to a time of practicing wrestling. We did this by putting together a letter to God, a letter about a story in the Bible or an experience in our life, something that makes us going, keep going back to God and saying, here's what I see, or here's what I had happen to me, or this thing that I'm confused by. And here's why that makes it hard for me to trust you. So I would encourage, and this could take many different forms, but I would encourage you to take the time to write down a letter of some sort to God saying, here is something that has happened or something that I read in scripture that's confusing or hard, something that makes me question whether you can be trusted. And this is why that is so difficult for me. And then stay in the conversation, wrestling with God and hearing their response to the concerns and the questions that you've brought to them. May we be people who wrestle with life, with God, with injustice, with pain, with mystery. And may we not let go as we hold on to a God who can be trusted even when we don't see how. Amen.